0: Good morning. morning. Take your Bible this morning and turn to the book of James, James chapter 5. I heard a story about a country church. A pastor got up at the end of the service one Sunday morning and said, Hey, listen, the church, we uh, kind of run into some financial difficulties, and so we want to take up a special offering. And, And I'll tell you what, the person who is most generous this morning, I'm going to let them come up and pick three hymns to close out the service this morning. And so uh, they collected the offering, and uh, there he, he was just surprised to see right there uh, in the offering plate was $1,000 that was given in this offering. And he said he was just blown away, and he just was thrilled, and he got up and said, my goodness, I can't believe one of y'all, get, I need to know, I mean, I know you, you want to be humble, but just please let me know, it'll bless me to know who gave this, and an elderly lady who was by herself, raising her hand on the back row, she's a humble lady, And she, uh, you know, sheepishly raised her hand and he said, please, ma'am, come down front. Thank you so much for your generous gift. And I'm going to keep my promise. You know, you get to pick three hymns here as we close the service out. And she said, oh, my goodness, I'm so excited. And she began to look around the room and and she uh, was indecisive. And he said, ma'am, we got to go. And he said, she said, I'm thinking it's just three hymns. It's not that difficult. And she goes, "Okay, I got it. And she looked and found three good looking guys in the room and said, I'll take him. I'll take him and I'll take him. All right. So a little little cheesy, lighthearted humor to introduce a very heavy subject that can be very difficult to tackle in church. Because this morning, the book of James is going to take on the subject of our money. Generosity, of wealth, of riches, of greed. I mean, you start talking about money in church especially sometimes in a Baptist church, people start getting hives and start going, oh, I don't know, I don't know if we can talk about this. People kind of get a little squirmy, uh, maybe for some different reasons and maybe for some reasons that you know, we could understand. Maybe you were in a church where things were mishandled. Maybe you were in a church where uh, things were not you know, really taught biblically when it came to finances. Sometimes it may have felt more like the pastor's leading a telethon from the pulpit instead of preaching you know, biblical stewardship Maybe you were part of a church that uh, dealt with some crisis or scandal involving finances. Some of those things may be legitimate reasons, and we understand why you may feel uncomfortable. Sometimes I wonder if we just feel uncomfortable because we don't like anybody talking about our money. And I think that is sometimes the case for us. And yet we can't ignore the fact that over and over and over and over again, the Bible, the New Testament, has a lot to say about our money. This is one of the reasons we walk through books chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is it forces us to move through every part of it to where we just can't skip to the next song and skip parts that are difficult. And so we come to a part of the letter that James writes. Up to this point, he ta- he's talked about how if you're an authentic disciple, if the gospel has authentically taken root in your life, it's going to produce evident fruit. Your relationship with Christ as an authentic disciple is going to change, visibly change your life, your attitude, the way you walk through trials, your words. It's going to change your relationships with people. It's also going to change your relationship with your stuff, with money, with possessions, with the resources that God has blessed you with. Would you stand with your Bible open and honor and reverence the reading of it? I'm going to begin to read in verse 1. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we come to you, Lord, humbly with hands open. God, we ask you to teach us, Father, to send your Holy Spirit and power to help us hear from you. Lord, to show us what we need to see, Lord, to show us what our hearts need to believe. Lord, convict us of sin, In this area of our life, Lord, we have thoughts about it. We have thoughts about our stuff. We have thoughts about money. But as Isaiah said, your thoughts and ways are higher than ours and better than ours. So flood our hearts and our minds with your truth that we may see our sin, that we may repent of it, and that we, by your grace, that we may be grateful for your word that cuts us like a surgeon's knife to heal us for our good, but ultimately for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've got to love the way that James opens this up right here. Verse 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Right, anybody have that on their mirror as their memory verse this past week? You know, anybody have that stitched on their love seat pillow? Crocheted somewhere? Probably not. It actually probably be kind of disturbing if that was crocheted or, uh, on a pillow. Uh, so I'm not necessarily saying we need to put that on a t-shirt, but I am saying that, that this is in God's Word, and these are words of God that need to be paid attention to by us. Now, it's very clear in this passage that James is talking to lost rich people, rich people who are consumed by greed. And you say, well, how do you know they're lost? Because we don't see anywhere in this passage, in these six verses, that phrase and that title that he uses in other places in the letter, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in the faith. You see that nowhere here. So we're pretty confident this is two lost, rich, ungodly people who were living around Christians and around a lot of poor Christians at the time that this letter was written. So if that is the case, this brings up a very important question: If this is written to lost people, then what do we do as believers, as disciples, with these six verses? Like, why are these included in a letter that's written to a church? Right? It's not like a lot of these rich, any of these rich, ungodly, lost people would be sitting in the congregation when this letter was originally read when it was delivered to the churches from James. So why is it here? What do we do with it? Well, we understand why it's here when we understand that James is kind of going Old Testament prophet right here. He's going off. He's going off a lot like the prophets in the Old Testament would when they were addressing Israel but were going off on surrounding nations, addressing surrounding pagan nations about their sin and would be talking about the judgment that they were going to experience. And it's as if God is saying when he does that through the prophets in the Old Testament as they're addressing Israel and as he does this through James as James is addressing the church and talking about these pagan ungodly rich people it's as if he's saying hey listen these are people you don't have to fear and these are people you don't want to copy that's the point that he's making it's as if God's saying hey in these six verses I want to show you right here what I think of greed what I think about the idolization of worldly treasure I want you to know what where it leads ultimately so for this reason so that you don't envy those kind of people so that you don't chase after and pursue the things that they're living for, that they're losing their lives for, that they're bowing their knee to, that they're looking for satisfaction and that can't give their soul satisfaction lest you invite these things, things into your life, even as a Christian, and invite ruin and invite damage and invite wasted opportunities into your life, even as a disciple. God knows the temptation that there is, especially as I mentioned last week for people like us who live in an affluent culture to get wowed and to get captivated by riches and by wealth. And so this is kind of like a snap out of it passage where he's going, Hey, Hey, you don't want to be like them. This is what I think about them. So you don't want to chase after that. You don't want to be all eaten up with greed like them. Look at where it leads. Look at my heart towards it. Don't be like that. Now I want to be very clear this morning that this message is not against the about the bible being against you having money that's not the point of this passage it's not a sin to have money you say well i thought the money is the root of all evil no that's not what it says it says the love of money is the root of all evil it's not a sin for you to have money it's a sin for your money to have you to have you like this guy is described right here in james chapter five right you have this guy right here kind of guy that would be featured in lifestyles of the rich and famous owns a bunch of land a sure sign of wealth back in those days a guy who's rich who has all kinds of stuff has a lot of wealth but has no mindfulness of the reality that his life is but a mist sitting out on his front porch of his mansion sipping on sweet tea loving life looking out at all the fields that he owns Reveling in his wealth, looking at all these people who work for him, who he mistreats, but he doesn't care because they're making him more rich. Got a bunch of money in the bank, got a nice fleet of camels in his garage. He's got a bunch of stuff, a lot of possessions, and he feels like life is just gonna last forever. He's living a high on a hog, but totally oblivious to the reality that this party will end soon and very soon, and he will stand before a holy God in judgment. In this whole section right here is meant to remind authentic disciples that we don't think like that, that we don't live like that, that we don't behave like that in the kingdom of God. And so it's a brilliant thing that James is doing right here. He's saying, hey, this is the way these ungodly rich are living. This is what God thinks about them. So here's your takeaways, right? This is showing you as an authentic disciple what you're not supposed to be. So those are going to be our points this morning. We're going to pull them out right here out of this text, right? Three things we're not supposed to be. Three things that we are not as it relates to our wealth and money and possessions. First is this. Authentic disciples are not hoarders. Authentic disciples are not hoarders. You're like, well, I don't think I've seen that show. I'm definitely not a hoarder. I know some hoarders. My husband, I think he's a borderline hoarder. But I think we're good. I think we're okay. Well, I would say not so fast. Look at verse 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Alright, drop that on somebody this week. There it is again. Some serious language. But do you see what James is doing right here? Some of you are picking it up already. He's contrasting the, the way that these guys are living with the commands of his older brother. The way that he's talking. The way he's crafting these statements. These statements. Right, he's, he's showing that, hey, these people are doing exactly what Christ told us not to do. Opposite of what he commanded. In Matthew 6, 19, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see what they're doing? They're laying up their treasures on earth. Jesus said, lay up your treasures in heaven. You lay up your treasures on earth, it's not going to end well for you. That is the point, Christ, That's the point James is making right here. And again, he's showing us that these greedy, unbelieving people who lay up their treasures on earth—that it's not going to—it's going to end literally in flames of judgment. But we also remember that this passage is also working as a reminder to us of what we're not, because of the temptation to hoard things and to live for the things of this world and to lay up treasures on earth—it still, in a very real way, lingers in our flesh. And this is a passage we need, we need, we need our heart reminded about what God thinks about this. We need our heart reminded of this, that laying up treasures on earth, is just a bad investment strategy. That's what this passage shows us. Here's why, because when you treasure money, when you put your hope and your trust in material things, you're trusting in things that are going to betray you, that'll leave you. That will not bring you security. That will not bring you the satisfaction and fulfillment that you think they will. That they promise they will. Stuff is fleeting. Last week we looked at our life is but a mist. So is your stuff. So is money. So is resources. So are our possessions. James says, think about it. All the things that we're tempted to trust in and invest in, tie our joy to, treasure. He says, what happens to those things? It's not rocket science. He says, just think about it. What words does he use? He says they rot. They're eaten up. They corrode. Think about all the things that we get excited about that just make us so happy. And I'm not saying it's, it's wrong. We can enjoy life. The Bible tells us to enjoy life. But so many things that light up our hearts, new phones, TVs, granite countertops, shiplap in your whole house. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. Right? That might be out of style. The car, the house, the boat. Can we get real? Let's just get real. None of that stuff will be yours in 100 years. Most of it will be a pile of dust. See how, see how foolish it is? And how simple it is to understand, but how quickly we're pulled away from it in real ways. And we treasure, and the things that we treasure, the things that we fight and live for and hoard will eventually literally be in a pile of trash one day we get so blinded and we are prone to wonder and you look around the world and even the nicest things in the world the the shiniest things in the world the most expensive things in the world the most elite things in the world that people in this world will idolize and literally give their life to and lose their life to gain and to get their hands on are earthly treasures that have an expiration date that cannot satisfy the longings of the human heart it's just true be yet there are things that we can get so foolishly and irrationally attached to. will give you an example. It reminds me of the story about a guy who was... He had a BMW that he just cherished. It was his prized possession. He took care and... Cared for that thing, not a scratch on it, washed it every day, was proud of it, and he was driving that BMW one day and, and he, he lost control of the BMW and he realized that he was about, it was about to launch him off of, he was about to launch off the edge of a cliff and so as he realized he was about to go off the edge of this cliff, he just instinctually threw the the, the door open and, and he tried to roll out, and his arm got caught by the seatbelt, and off went the BMW, and so did his arm, and he stood there on the edge of the cliff. And he's shaking his arm, missing, and all he could say was, My BMW. Oh, my BMW. I can't believe I love that car. It's my BMW. Oh, my BMW. And about that time, a guy in a, a truck, a trucker pulled over and, and went over to him and was just shocked and was like, Sir, Sir, did get? all he could say, am I my BMW. Look at my BMW. I lost my BMW. The trucker's like, hey, you gotta hey you gotta snap out of it, man. He goes, No, you don't understand my BMW. He goes, Sir, we've got to get you to a hospital. Oh my BMW. He goes, listen, forget about the BMW. You lost your arm. And the guy looks down at his arm and goes, My Rolex watch. My Rolex watch. I lost my Rolex watch. Hey, it's insane how blind we can get how fleeting and futile and how the things of this earth that we'll chase after and give our lives to grasp our earthly treasures that have no ability to give our life satisfaction, that have no eternal value and pull us away from what is truly valuable and truly is life-giving. And so we look at what James is saying right here and we come to the conclusion, hey, don't trust in those things. Don't treasure those things. And there's a bigger message of the gospel that comes in right here because Jesus says, hey, I got a better way for you to live. Hey, instead of living your life, seeking to treasure the newest and greatest and shiniest and coolest thing that'll rust and that'll corrode and that'll leave you. Jesus says through his word, what if I became your treasure? What if I became the most valuable thing in your life? What if I became the thing that you wanted more and more and more? What if, you, what if I became the thing that you were obsessively pursuing, that you became addicted to? What if I became what you lived for? And then as a result of that, you experienced greater joy and greater hope and greater love and greater peace and a bunch of stuff that'll just sit here and rot in a pile will ever bring your life. That's the invitation to the gospel. That's the invitation of Jesus. And I'm telling you, look, this is important. When you really get that, When your heart's truly gripped by that, you will then be in a position to faithfully steward the stuff and the money and the possessions and the blessings that God has given you. That's when you will start to hold on to the things of this earth with a looser grip. That's when you will begin to learn what it means fueled by the gospel for you to turn your life into more of a conduit of God's blessing to bless other people and to invest in the kingdom of God than a cave where you hoard stuff that just sits there and rots and does nobody any good. know, what the gospel does is it begins to supernaturally transform our perspective to where we see that the gifts we have are gifts from God that he's entrusted to us not to be hoarded by us for our own glory but to be stewarded for the glory of Jesus Christ why again if he's my treasure then I'm going to do that because Jesus is my treasure now and I have a relationship with him that never rusts that never corrodes That'll never fade away. And my soul is secure in him. So if my soul is secure in him, if he is my treasure, and if I truly believe that, why on earth would I hoard things on this earth and try to kind of use them as some kind of security blanket to keep me secure? If my soul, if I believe in my heart, is secure in the hands of God, and if Christ is my treasure, do you see how that frees you up to be a good steward? It frees you up to see whatever breath you have left, whatever time you have left, whatever life you have left on this earth, whatever money you have left, whatever possessions you have, what even with food that God blesses you with. You leverage in all of your life for eternal purposes to help spread the gospel so that other people can know Christ as their treasure as well. Now, the pushback here is: Well, what does that mean? Does that mean I just sell everything, like live out of a van or live as cheap as I can? What does that mean? Does it, I thought stewardship has to do with saving. I thought stewardship has to do with caring for my finances and paying off debts that I have. And I would say, absolutely. Saving and hoarding are not the same thing. Right? There's nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with saving. In fact, there's a lot right about that. The Bible has a lot to say. Proverbs 6.8 says that we can learn from ants. Like ants can teach us the importance of saving where it says they prepare, prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. So be wise, save, be a good steward of your stuff, save so that you're not a burden on people around you, save so that you can leave a blessing for your kids. That's good that that honors God strive to be debt free. But remember that biblical stewardship doesn't just stop with saving and with paying off debts. There's a whole other half of it. Biblical stewardship is not just about saving, it's also about sharing. It's also about holding on to earthly resources with a loose hand, of being generous, not just even with your finances, with your time, with your talent, and yes, with your treasure. See, when you begin to see Jesus as your treasure, to see your life secure in His grip, and His hands, and you're not looking to trust in anything in this world, you become a good steward. And you begin to see everything in your life as property of God that you're put here on earth to steward, to bless other people and invest in the kingdom of God and help propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. What, when you have this right mindset, you'll begin to see all the possessions you have as stamped with the message of gifted to, be my, gifted to me by Jesus, to be stewarded for his purposes, his praise, his glory, and his mission. That's why we bring our tithes and offerings To the lord to help fund the mission of our local church it's it's a way it's a it's a biblical principle that helps us remember that what we have is god's and the first of what i'm given i'm going to bring to god it's it's a reminder that and then it's also a, a way for me to invest wisely for me, to, to invest in a church that is seeking to propagate the gospel, that is seeking to meet the needs in the community that they're placed in, in the name of Jesus, that is seeking to make disciples, that is seeking to be on mission, that is a wise investment. That's laying up treasures in heaven. That's why we give cheerfully. That's why we give generously. That's why we're generous with not just our finances, but with our time, with our talents. That's why we choose to spend time coming to a service like this and serving on a campus like this, opening doors, serving in the nursery. To go into a, 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 a children's division area and to see an adult on the floor playing with kids. Some of you are like, That's, you're, you went to college and you got an education. What are you doing in the floor? Hanging out with kids. Because you know it's a wise investment. You know, it's, you, you know it's using your time to lay up treasures in heaven. It's not just about your finances. It's about serving the bride of Christ. Using your time in generous ways for his glory. So we're not hoarders of our wealth, of our resources. The gospel turns us into good stewards so that we can bless others. Which is opposite of what these guys are doing in James chapter 5. They don't care about others. And in fact, what we see is they're, they're gripped with greed, and their greed has turned them into hoarders, and it's also turning them into cruel, unjust people, which brings us to point two. Authentic disciples aren't cruel. Aren't cruel and aren't unjust. Look at verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The greed not only turned them into hoarders, it's turned them into cruel and unjust people who are cheating their workers. Here's the deal, all right? You have some guys, they own a lot of property, already went over that. They got a lot of wealth. And they have these farmers, these harvesters, that are working for them, all right? And so you're a harvester there, and this is how these guys were treating their workers. One of the workers, he's worked all day. He's worked out in the sun. He goes home exhausted, sweaty, plops into his cheap recliner that they barely could afford. And his wife can see on his face, she already knows, and she hangs her head. And the kids come in and they realize there's not going to be any food on the table, and they look at dad, dad, you look like you, you worked today, right? And he says, Yeah, but they didn't pay me. So we won't be able to eat tonight. Put in an honest day's work, and yet won't be paid. And what James is saying is there's going to be kids that are hungry in that house and are crying, and a wife who has tears and despair on her face, and a dad who's got his, his, his face in his hands who's weeping because he can't provide for his family, and he feels broken, and he feels humiliated, all because greedy landowners who have the resources and the connections and the power to, to, to lift some people up and to help people and to bless people and to be fair with their workers are actually using their power not to help them up, but to push them down so that they can make themselves more rich. And God has intense language for that type of person. You see strong language in verse 4. You see it in verse 6. To make it crystal clear, God's saying, I'm not going to put up with that. This is no small thing. It says, the cries in verse 4 of the family have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That means master of armies. Or the one who commands the armies of Israel. For the oppressor, that is a terrifying image. And then in verse 6, you have a shocking indictment. It says, you, you, you greedy people who are misusing, mistreating, oppressing the poor, the down and out, the marginalized, trampling over them. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. You're like, come on, James, he's being dramatic again. I don't think I don't think they're shooting anybody. Right. There's no reason for us to think that he isn't talking about literal murder right here. If you don't pay people their wages that they're due, they can't provide for their family. If they can't provide for their family, they can't eat. If they can't eat, they starve to death in those days. No wonder, he says, you're going to weep and you are going to howl. Now, you're wondering maybe this morning, what does this have to do with me? I don't have any harvesters. don't got any farmers working for me. Maybe some of you do, but most of us don't. So the question is, is what is this intense language? What is... James, as an Old Testament style prophet calling out these greedy rich people who are lost. What does this have to do with me? Well, maybe there's some of you who do have some power. There's some of you in the room who do manage a group of people at your job. Some of you who own your own business. You have employees working under you. And here's the question. As a disciple of Jesus, who is interested in reigning over all areas of our life, not just interested in how we look and what we say and what we're focused on in a place of worship but who we are in our place of work as a disciple of jesus am i holding my business am i holding my job am i holding my position of influence as a supervisor or as a manager with open hands and with a heart that's saying god help me to steward this for your glory help me to lead in this position of influence and power in a way that honors you, in a way that's generous. It's a reminder if you are an employer that you're called to treat your workers as image bearers of God with respect, with compassion, to pay them a decent wage, to pay them on time. That is a pleasing attitude to God. It glorifies Him. When you say, well, nobody works for me, so I'm still trying to figure out where, what this has to do with me. How about you take this principle with you to the restaurant you're going to go eat at this afternoon? But see, when you sit down at that table and that server comes over to your table, in a way, I know that they're employed by that restaurant, but in a way, they're working for you for that hour. You're going to be sitting there. You're going to be asking them to do things. They're going to be serving you and doing what you tell them. And it is so discouraging. You hear a lot of this across America when you hear servers say, waitresses, waiters say, that some of the lowest tip days and some of the worst attitudes they get are Sunday afternoons. Groups of people who are dressed like they just went to a church service. Who even at times, can you believe it, will give a low tip and even slip a track right there next to the ticket. Now some of y'all are like, well, let me tell you something. I've done that before. And if you were there and you saw how bad that service is, you give them a track too. Because if they get right with Jesus, then maybe they can serve people like me better. And I would say, how about next time you consider that that may be a single mom? who's struggling to make ends meet? That that may be somebody who's having an extremely bad week, an extremely bad day. And in that moment, how about you realize that what may touch their life more than you ever know is to love them and serve them in a way that Jesus serves you. To give them what they don't deserve. Which is what we get from Christ. It's called grace. Then give them a gospel track. I'm telling you, I don't get that right all the time. But I know it's right to think that way. But when I do, by the grace of God, I'm telling you, I experience a blessing and a joy when I store up treasures in heaven, when I take that road in those situations, and I experience so much more joy than I would keeping that 10 or 15% that I feel like is owed me storing up my treasures on earth from that bill. Man, I want to be a church known for that kind of open-handedness. I don't want to be a church known in this community for that kind of generosity for the glory of God. So this passage is warning us, it's instructing us. Maybe you're wondering, but what about the oppressed here? Maybe that's who you are relating to right now. Because you see these people who are being oppressed. Maybe you're somebody who's been on the wrong end of a bad business deal. Maybe you're someone who's been mistreated at church by an, an overbearing boss. Who's treated you unfairly. Maybe you feel oppressed this morning. Well, know this, that when it says the cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, that's a scary verse for the oppressors. That's a very comforting and compassionate and tender verse for the ones who are being oppressed. Back to that house with the kids that are crying and the the parents that just feel like giving up. God wants them to know, hey, listen, I know it feels tough, but I want you to know the Lord of hosts, the one who commands the armies of Israel, He hears you. This morning, I want somebody needs to hear this this morning, I want you to know that God hears your prayers this morning. Some of you who are in a season of hurt, some of you who are in a season of feeling oppressed, some of you who are feeling in a, in a season of suffering, press into God. God hears you. As children of God, you've got access to the Heavenly Father that nobody else has. He is, yes, a powerful Creator, Holy Creator of the heavens, but He is also a compassionate, personal Father, Lord of hosts, who hears your Christ. Hey, he knows. Nothing escapes his compassionate eye. He knows what he hears. He cares. He's for you. One day, this is reminding people who were oppressed then that gave him the hope to keep pushing on. And it's something that can give you hope today that one day he's going to come and he's going to make all the wrongs right. And until that time, you know that he is a personal heavenly father who's going to give you grace to carry you through. And he's going to hear you. Press into him once again this morning. Invite him into the pain points of your life. God is not against you. He's for you. Never forget that. Longs to embrace you because he loves you. Third thing, very quickly this morning. Authentic disciples. What are they? They're they're not hoarders. They're not cruel. And authentic disciples aren't self-indulgent fools. Look at verse 5. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgent. And you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. All right, so more strong language right here for the ungodly rich. All right, it's a very clear picture. He's basically saying, hey, y'all, as y'all are running after all this stuff in the world with no fault in your mind about eternity or God, you're as clueless as a cow. That's the point he's making right here. Specifically a cow that's being cared for and fed in preparation for it to be slaughtered for steak night. And James is saying... To these wealthy people, I mean, you are like a cow stuffing yourself, living like a king, and you don't know you're about to be butchered. You choose to use your money in self-indulgence. You've stolen. You've hoarded. You've lived fat and happy. You aren't generous. You're not kind. You've used your money and your power to only benefit yourself. You're numb to your need for a Savior. Your need to be rescued from your greed and from your sin. And you're on a path. You're on a track to discover that it is very possible to be very rich and very wealthy and very well off in this world and very poor in the next. To live very comfortably in this life, in your pride, in your greed. And suffer greatly in the next. And yet, here it is again, right? What does this have to do with me? It's another reminder of God going, this is what I think about that. Don't envy those kind of people. Don't envy people through social media, through friendships, through your family. People who seem rich and happy live by the mantra of eat, drink, and be merry. People who seem like they have it all but who have no interest in God are being generous or Jesus or His kingdom or His mission. They're being fattened up for a day of slaughter, a day of judgment unless they repent. What we should feel for them is not envy. What we should feel for them is not a desire to emulate them. We should, we should feel compassion for them. We should feel sorry for them. We should pray that they'll find The true treasure of knowing Jesus Christ. This is a picture of a foolish cow. And it's a reminder for us to live differently. That's his message in this entire passage. Everything you see these greedy people doing as an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ, you're called to go the other direction. They're hoarding their wealth. We're called to be generous with our wealth. They're spending it all, all their resources on themselves. We're called to be people who elevate the needs of others above ourselves. They're robbing the poor. We help the poor. They're seeking to find satisfaction in the things of the world. We find our satisfaction in Jesus Christ, our Lord. They're living for the here and now. We live for glory. They're filled with and overflowing with greed. What are we in Christ? We're to be overflowing and filled with generosity. So we want a church that's full of disciples, full of people, absolutely juxtaposed to everything that we see right here. We want to be a generous church, full of generous people, seeking to leverage everything in our life that God entrusts to us. Time, talent, treasure for eternity, for the mission of Jesus Christ. Now, how does that happen? I was tempted to end the sermon right there. Then I found myself going, but how? How? How do I make sure I stay on track? I believe in my experience, in my understanding of God's word, we overcomplicate it. I believe you will be a generous person. You will hold on to things loosely and be a faithful, good steward for the glory of Jesus Christ by doing two things. By staying captivated by the gospel and keeping your eyes fixed on eternity. You, You keep those two things in check. And watch how more generous you are. Staying captivated by the gospel. What does that mean? It means continuously remembering how generous. I'm never more like God than when I'm generous. And I see how generous God was to me by looking at the cross. By thinking about what Jesus did for me. What did Jesus do? He stepped out of heaven. He said, I'm going to exchange all of this, all of these wealth, all this wealth and all this eternal riches to step down into a dead and broken and messed up and dying world to die for a spiritually poor people so that they can move from being a people with no spiritual inheritance to a people with great, eternal, lasting inheritance in me. That's generous. And it, that's not stingy. It's the Lord of the universe coming to save you, to die in your place, and to never turn off the faucet of grace and mercy that He flows into your life every single day. And that kind of generation, generosity, and when that kind of grace and that kind of love washes over your soul, it kills pride. It kills greed. It turns us into generous people who love to give, who love to bless, He was compelled to leave heaven because of his love for us, to help us, to save us, to raise us to new life, to give us a family to belong to. And we're never more like God than when we're generous. We're never more unlike God than when we hold things to ourselves and we hoard it. Hearts captivated by the gospel. And I'm so glad I have time to finish this last point. Because it also takes a heart and eyes that are fixed on eternity. You see, this is all over this passage. All over this passage. An eternal focus makes us generous. He's talking about the last days. We live in the last days. He talks about laying up your treasure in heaven. He talks about judgment. What's judgment supposed to do to our mind? It's supposed to make us think. Hey, there's coming a judgment. This world isn't all there is. It's supposed to make us think. When we think about judgment, how foolish it is. Think about people who are going to be judged. It's foolish to live for the things that people will be judged for one day. And the point that James is making, here it is, tune in right here. If judgment is truly coming, if we are truly in the last days, if our life is but a mist, if heaven is our eternal home and it's just in front of us on the horizon, if I really believe that, why would I hoard possessions on this earth? Why would I idolize and obsess over and worship my money? Why would I look for and trust in and look for joy in the things that I have? None of it are things that I can take with me. If I truly believe heaven is a real place, and if that's where I'm going to, want to spend eternity, should it not impact the way that I walk through this little blip mist of life that I live on this earth? But it, but it only happens if you really believe heaven is a place. If there's a city awaiting you, that after your small life on this earth is over, you'll spend eternity in as a disciple. Do you believe that is a real place this morning? Three of us believe that's a real place this morning. I'm a little worried right now. Do you believe that's a real place this morning? I mean, is that something that excites you? You know, that's something that excited John. In Revelation 21, with a little glimpse he got of where we're going, he didn't even have words to describe it. He tried to spend some time describing what he saw, and then when that didn't work, he had to just start firing off what's not there. Revelation one four, he says this, it's a place where there's no more mourning, there's no more crying, there's no more pain, there's no more death. I was challenged this past week to write my own list of no mores. I'd challenge you to do it this week. As you experience the brokenness of this world in your own life, in your family's life, things in this world that are not the way they should be because of sin. It starts you a no more list. Because one day, if you're in Christ and you're an authentic disciple, you're going to exist in a place where that's no more. So I made me a list no more disease there, no more depression, no more anxiety, no more worry, no more heartache, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more brokenness is there, no more aches, no more medicine, no more shots, no more doctor's appointments, no more physical therapy. No more abuse, no more shattered homes, no more fighting, no more drama. It's a place, I think it's a place where there won't be any calories. Can I get an amen? No more New Year's resolutions to lose weight. No more repair shops, no more road construction. Jacksonville people, can I get another amen? Amen. No more crime, no more drive-by shootings, no more break-ins, break-ups, no more bills, no more high gas prices, no more wars, no more soldiers sent home in caskets, no more politicians, no more corrupt human governments, no more elections, no more courtrooms, no more orphans, no more nursing homes, no more lost jobs, no more drama, no more gossip. It's a place where there won't be any more funeral services, no more graveyards, no more phone calls that deliver heartbreaking news, no more sin, no more repentance, no more shame, forevermore and forevermore. And if we truly believe heaven is a real place, and that's where we're going to spend eternity, hear me for a second. It's one thing to say that I believe that. It's one thing to say that I'm excited about a heavenly city that awaits me just ahead. But the question is, does my bank account reflect that I believe that? Does my attitude towards my possessions reflect that I believe that? Does my church attendance reflect that I believe that? Do my emotions and attitude and how I walk through trials reflect that I believe that? Does the way that I leverage my resources and my time and my life and my belongings and my money reflect that I believe that? If I believe that, if I truly believe that the gospel is true... And I truly believe that heaven awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. How much more aggressively would I be investing in the kingdom of God right now today? How much more would I be laying up the treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal? How much more? How much more? Let's pray. I'm going to make this response time. Simple and to the point. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've looked to the things in this world for satisfaction. You've searched this world for treasure that your soul is hunting for, but it's never going to find in the things of this world. And it's only going to find it in Jesus Christ. Only through a relationship with Him can you have everlasting life forgiveness of your sins? Can you be right with the one and only true God? If you do not have that relationship with Him this morning, we want to help you understand what it looks like to receive the gospel. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. I'll be standing down front. Feel free to come down. I'd love to pray with you about that. All you have to say is, I'm coming this morning to receive Christ. That's all you have to say. I'm coming this morning to receive Christ. Believer, Hey, maybe for you, it has to do with finances. You know, generosity, stewardship isn't just about finances, but maybe for you, it has something to do with that. The Bible commands us to be cheerful, generous givers, and to support and fund the mission of the local church we're committed to that's preaching the Bible, making disciples, and propagating the gospel. Have you been holding back? Why have you been holding back? Search your heart. And maybe that's the step of faith that you need to make. You need to be obedient step out and become a faithful, generous giver. It's not just about finances. It's not just about tithing. What about your time? What about your talent? What about your gifts? What about your possessions? Do you have a heavenly mindset? Are you holding on to things with a loose grip? You say, I don't think I am. I don't think I am. And I feel convicted. Convicted. Conviction is a gift of the Holy Spirit that is evidence that God's not through with you. So repent of that sin. Open your hands before a holy God who loves you. And commit to living a life of generosity by focusing on the gospel, fixing your eyes on eternity.